Indeed, Jesus, how great you are. Our soul sings. You've been raised from the dead. We have eternal life because of you. And we are here to worship you this morning. To start our week off with a proper focus. And I pray for the next half hour or so that you would focus our thoughts. That you would free our minds and our hearts and our spirits from any distractions. And that people would hear you through my voice this morning. I pray that it would not be me that they hear. That your word would speak to them, penetrating their hearts, dividing the soul and the spirit, revealing what is inside, and that we would surrender every area of our heart to you. And so, Spirit, I invite you to come and to do your work of conviction regarding sin, righteousness, and judgment. Build up your church for the sake of your glory, I pray. Amen. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, we're going to continue our different series, but with a different title. It's actually a new series, but we're going to continue our study in Matthew chapter 5. It's called, this new series called Counterculture, Today's Counterculture, Living a Righteous Life. Today's sermon is really about absolute truth. But in Matthew 5, 17 to 20, in the New American Standard, we read this. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, as you may recall, in the Beatitudes, verses chapter 5, verses 3 through 12, Jesus is laying out the qualities that make up the citizens of his kingdom, and they make them distinct from the rest of the world. The citizens of his kingdom are, to summarize, the ones who are beggars due to their spiritual bankruptcy, the ones who mourn over their sin, meaning they regularly confess their sin to God, the ones who are meek before a holy God, the ones who hunger and thirst for a righteousness that is not of their own, and so consequently, they are the ones who are merciful, having received God's mercy. This leads to the ones that are pure in heart. They will one thing. This holiness brings conflict because it is in direct contrast with the world. Thus, they are the ones who have to learn to be peacemakers. You can't separate peace and holiness. They are the ones who are persecuted. The world hates Jesus, and if you're his follower, the world hates you. This is the distinctive lifestyle of a citizen of God's kingdom, and it is completely counterculture. It is the opposite of the way of the world, it is different. In short, 
Jesus is defining the character of a believer because, as you remember, our doing is always to flow out of what? Our being. It all starts in the heart. It all starts with character, with who you are. And if the inside, the heart, is good, then guess what? The outside, your actions will be good. Because a good tree cannot bear bad fruit. And a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. So out of our being, out of our character, and by the way, the only thing you can take with you when you die is the person you've become. Out of our character, out of our being, we are then called to our doing. Being salt and light. Now both of these symbols, salt and light, can be summarized in one word, and that is influence. Christians are to have a profound influence. Let me say that again. We are to have a profound influence upon the world. And just as salt secretly permeates meat, it provides flavor, it prevents decay, so are Christians by their character to influence the world. And just as light shines away in darkness, by our lives and our actions and our words, we are to manifest God visibly. So others see and hear our good works, and in the end, our Heavenly Father is glorified. Now these are the very first words of Jesus' first sermon. And if you were to create an outline of Matthew 5, it would read something like this. Matthew 5, 3 through 12 would be a Christian's character. That is a Christian's character. Matthew 5, 13 to 16 would be a Christian's influence. That's talking about salt and light. And upon just even a casual study of Matthew 5, you will quickly see how to outline the rest of chapter 5, verses 17 to 48. So Matthew 5, 17 to 48 would be a Christian's righteousness. Thus this new sermon series, Counterculture, How to Live or Living a Righteous Life. Now, if you didn't even outline Matthew chapter 5, just looking at the words of his sermon following Jesus' line of thinking, you would logically lead to this question. And this is the question that we all wrestle with. How can anyone, anyone, it means all of us in here, including myself, become that kind of beatitude person and then live that kind of righteous life? Because it is so foreign to us, isn't it? When we are persecuted, instead of rejoicing, we do what? We seek comfort. We run from it. When we are insulted, we don't respond in love. When we are offended, we don't quickly forgive. This is different. This is counterculture. But the answer to the question, how can anyone become that kind of person and live that kind of righteous life is really found in verse 17. You must uphold the word of God. You must keep the word of God. Because the word of God is the Christian's standard for righteousness. And in verses 17 to 48, Jesus will describe what our righteousness looks like. But first, let me explain to you what I mean when I say uphold or keep the word of God. And this is where we're going to talk about absolute truth. 
And perhaps you will see this passage, these three or four verses, in a different light after we're done with this sermon. But Harold Berman was born a Jew in Hartford, Connecticut. In 1918, he found Jesus as his Messiah when he turned 21 years of age in 1939. He developed a deep appreciation for the things of God and for the things of law. Since we're talking about God and we're talking about law, this is an apt illustration. In 1974, he wrote a book called Interaction of Law and Religion, in which he argues Western culture has had a devastating loss of confidence in the law. Now, not the religious law, like the Mosaic law, but our laws, and in religion. And one of the causes of this loss of confidence, he argues, is the radical separation of law and religion. His conclusion is that you cannot have law, and I'm defining law by just the rules and behaviors that we live by, you cannot have law without religion because it is religion that provides the absolute foundation for morality in law. You with me so far? Okay. Now, very prophetically, this is what he, he wrote, and I almost put it up there on the screen, but it's kind of technical, but give me a moment to explain it to you. I'll read you the quote, and then kind of explain what he's saying here. He says, when prevailing concepts of law and of religion become too narrow, and hence the links between the two dimensions are broken, a society becomes demoralized. In other words, you separate, you so narrowly define and, and focus on the law and religion, you separate the two, society becomes demoralized. In essence, really, society will start to tear itself apart. He says, the existing institutional structures and processes of law and religion, he says, they, they then lose their sanctity. And conversely, the sacred values upon which this society is founded are viewed as mere hypocrisy. And eventually, such demoralization of society may yield to widespread, now listen to this, widespread demands for radical change. Does that sound familiar? Since 46 years later, this is 1974, 2020, 46 years later, we can evaluate his, this statement and without reservation say he was correct. Does not the year 2020 show that we are living in a demoralized society? Does society not view the law with suspicion? I do. Does not society view religion as hypocritical? Are there not calls for radical change in our society? Well, why is this happening? Well, let me explain to you through the way we view truth. Because our world has been building toward this time for centuries. You may recognize this, if it can ever come up here. We joke and put it up next. Oops, there we go. There we go. You recognize this worldview? I kind of changed a little bit of it, but I want you to see basically this that in regards to how the world views truth, historically, I just call it an ancient world, historically, for thousands and thousands of years, we viewed truth as absolute. There was a standard, and truth was that standard, and truth was found through the Word of God. And the word of God was proven by fulfilled prophecy. 
that proved that there was an eternal God and that his truths were eternally irrelevant and that they didn't change. You with me so far? So there is an absolute truth, a standard by which we, it's an anchor in our society, it's a standard by which we all live. But when the modern world came along, and, and most philosophers would say right around the time of the Enlightenment, they began to question the authority of Scripture and the authority of God in fulfilled prophecies, and so truth became, began to become questioned, and it became relative over time. And in essence, what we're saying here is that truth was, in essence, what science told us. And so, just let me read this to you, and then we get to the idea of a postmodern world where we live now, and that truth is personal, whatever I feel is true. And we understand that, right? Okay. But in 1974, when he wrote this, uh, we lived in a world that viewed truth as relative. And that truth was whatever the modern world, namely science, told us was true. And you've heard me say this before. I grew up with commercials pushing, promoting, marketing, margarine. They're not on TV anymore. Well, why? Because we found out that margarine, which was supposed to be healthy for us, isn't healthy for us. It's like plastic in your veins. And so what was once true, in 1974, that would have been true. It's not true anymore. So it's whatever science was discovering was true. And since science is always discovering new facts, truth was viewed as relative. But the key point I want you to see is that the world no longer believed in an absolute truth. And this had devastating consequences upon society. In particular, law and religion. Because we're talking about the law in religion and the statements that Jesus just spoke of in Matthew 5, 17 to 20. Now the author, Bierman, feared that Western culture is doomed to an existential relativism in law because of the loss of an absolute truth. And again, when I refer to absolute truth, I'm referring to God and his word as a source of truth. So in other words, you have law without religion, it can never be then authoritative. You understand? Because truth is no longer what? Absolute. So the law really has no binding authority because truth is now relative. Truth is no longer understood as coming from an eternal God whose truths are eternally relevant and binding. Because truth, as we've learned, must have a transcendent value that does not change. And this is what gives truth its authority. But when truth becomes relative, here's what happens with the law. See if you've recognized this pattern. There's a problem, an issue, and a judge and a court issues a ruling. But because truth is relative, that ruling is not a, really a declaration of truth, but really a hope or an experiment in resolving the issue. And the judge's decision ultimately is reversed by what? A higher court who decides that in the course of time, this ruling was incorrect. All of it's based upon relative truth. You follow me so far? So there's only one result to this view of truth regarding law. And think about this. No judicial decision is ever final. 
We're constantly changing laws. They didn't change laws thousands of years ago. Now we are. Well, why? Truth is relative, right? While truth was relative in 1974, that's not the case anymore, is it? Truth is now personal, as you see. In relation to the law, it means that whatever one thinks or feels, that becomes a law. This is why such ridiculous laws, remember this, the Equality Act, are conceived? At no time in human history has anyone in society or any society tried to legislate a person's feelings into law in regard to their gender identity. (laughs) I feel like I'm a woman today, therefore you can't discriminate against me because I'm going to go into a woman's restroom. And if you discriminate against me, you'll be punished. This is why in Oregon they can pass a law legalizing cocaine and heroin. Despite the undeniable truth that we know these drugs are illegal in every other state because they're just so destructive. They take lives. They're dangerous. Truth is personal. This is why we have Supreme Court justice who legalized the murder of innocent children in the womb despite overwhelming medical evidence that life begins at conception. You see, by removing absolute truth or religion from the law, judicial decisions are reduced to catch this now, they're mere hunches, guesses. Does that make sense? That was the theory and the idea proposed in 1974. We are 46 years removed from 1974. We can see how deadly accurate, tragically accurate, this man was. And if that is the case, if judicial decisions are simply guesses or hunches, then logically, and we've seen this play out, why should people observe those legal rules if they do not like them? Right? And we've watched this play out over the last four years. Some people refuse to accept what the law clearly stated. We elect a new president every four years by a vote of the people. And to demonstrate their refusal to observe the law, what did the people do? They rioted, they looted. Streets in our, in, in our cities around this country. So they not only refused to accept what the law of the Constitution states, they also broke the laws of their cities by rioting and looting, stealing and even killing. And some of them were never punished for those crimes. Well, why would they get away with that? Truth is personal. That's the, the, our reality right now. And it was even more than the fact that they were liberals, They didn't like the new president and his conservative policies. They behaved in a way, these people, that was consistent with their view of the truth. Truth is personal and I can do whatever I want. And the rioting and the looting only stopped when a group of people who viewed the truth as absolute stepped in and said no more. Society has to be founded on an absolute truth. The laws must be founded on an absolute truth. Without that anchor, society will fall apart. 
people came along and said to those writers, those looters, what you're doing has been wrong and continues to be wrong. And with the authority inherent in absolute truth, they arrested these criminals and punished them accordingly. That's how society operates. Now, why am I telling you this? Because we, all of us in here, are living in a society that is desperately trying to have rules, have laws, without an absolute. You with me so far? This is probably the, the, the intellectual part of the sermon. I th- you guys, most of you are awake. So we good? Any questions? Okay. But you cannot build a consistent legal system, basically I'm saying this, on philosophical humanism. Because the constant changing of what is right and what is wrong. Now the problem we are facing as a society, and this is where I want you to be encouraged, of living in a society that does not believe or view truth as absolute, and views it as personal, really is the same problem Jesus faced with the society he confronted in his Sermon on the Mount. Because in verses 17 to 18, you, you guys there? What does he say about the law? Do not think what? But what? To fulfill it. Do you know what he's really saying there? He is affirming an absolute truth. The unchanging word of God. Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. This is absolute truth. You with me so far? Okay. Now, let's talk about this. This is unfortunate. We have to do this changing the rules. This is verses, verses 17 to 20. Let's look at 19 and 20. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now when Christ began his ministry at the age of roughly 30 years old, he kind of just appeared on the scene. It was really quite dramatic. Uh, John the Baptist called him the Lamb of God, remember that? Who takes away the sin of the world. Clear reference to the Messiah. Jesus taught with an authority that was unlike anything else. Anyone had ever heard anything like him. He didn't quote other rabbis. His teachings were unique and they were counterculture. And of course he demonstrated his authority and power by healing sicknesses and casting on evil spirits, and simply put, the world had never seen anyone like him before. Now, even the leaders of Israel had to take notice. They traveled great distances to watch and hear him, and he was so different. Just consider the following that I've taken from the four Gospels. He was full of meekness and humility. They were full of boastfulness and pride. meaning the Pharisees. See, he was a man of integrity. The Pharisees were known to be hypocritical. He called for repentance or change. They called for conformity to their rules. He proclaimed good news. Their message put you into bondage. He proclaimed a heavenly kingdom. They proclaimed a worldly kingdom. He spoke against legalism. They embraced legalism. 
He spoke of an inward morality. They focused on what? The outward appearance. He was a friend of sinners. They despised sinners. He proclaimed grace. They proclaimed the law. He dispensed mercy. They dispensed justice. He forgave. They punished. And because Jesus was so unique, he was viewed as a revolutionary who just might overthrow the existing power structures. That was a thought in the minds of the people in the crowds that are hearing him preach his first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. They were thinking, would he subvert the authority of the word of God in the Old Testament? I mean, he had already disregarded the traditions of, of men with all their burdensome laws and regulations. He didn't echo the prevailing theology of the day. He refused to identify himself with any of the sects Sex, S-E-C-T-S, of his time. And they were thinking, will he destroy the absolutes of the Mosaic law, the law given to Moses by God? And we have his answer right here, and it's an emphatic no. In effect, he says, what I am teaching is nothing new. That's verses 17 and 18. What I am teaching is nothing new. I am going to fulfill the whole Old Testament law. I will not set aside one jot of the law. I will not set aside one tittle of the law until all is fulfilled. Because that's why he came, to meet all the requirements of the law in himself. Because we can't do that ourselves. And they were thinking this because the people, it is in the crowds, because they were laboring under the burden of the law as imposed by the religious leadership of the time. You may recall historically the nation of Israel, they had a long history of unfaithfulness to God, didn't they? And this resulted in punishment in the form of captivity by other nations, and over time, the people just grew tired of this cycle of sin and captivity and restoration. Sin, captivity, restoration. They just got tired of it, and so they attempted to return to God, but on their own terms. In order to avoid the curses of the law laid out in Deuteronomy, the elders, the wise men of Judaism, they created 613 additional laws so as to prevent the people from breaking God's law laid out in the Old Testament. Remember those, some of the laws, the ridiculous laws I share with you? You can only walk so far on the Sabbath, you couldn't, you could help an animal out of a hole, but not a man. I mean, it was just ridiculous, these laws that they created. You only do so much work on that day. This only led to a self-righteous legalism that's characterized by religious hypocrisy. See, instead of following God, they followed rules. Instead of loving God, they loved the law. Instead of inner holiness, they focused on an external experience, appearances, and all of this was contrary to the clear teachings of the Old Testament. See, in doing this, and this is the point I want you to get, they lowered the standard of righteousness. God has always said that the righteous are what? Justified by faith. The very origin, the father of the people of Israel was none other than who? Abraham. 
he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It was not righteousness by works, but righteousness by faith in the promise of God. But the religious leadership, no. Rather than believe God and accept his righteousness, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all of them, they taught a justification before God through works or a strict observance of their law. So again, I want you to see, by doing so, they lowered the standard of righteousness. And along comes Jesus, and what does he do? He raises the standard of righteousness to where it had always been. The people's righteousness, now catch this, this would have blown their minds away, must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, or they will not enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says. And I know this had to shock them because that was the standard of righteousness for the people, and they were under a burden to live up to that standard. That's why Jesus said to them, all you who are weary and heavy laden, what? Come to me and I will give you rest. For my what? Yoke is easy, my burden is light. And they were taught that the highest standard of righteousness was what they saw in the scribes and the Pharisees. But really what the Pharisees did, what the religious leadership of Israel did, is that they did what is human nature. We all have a tendency to make things easy. Now the people were thinking that the standard was so high, because it was just so burdensome to meet this standard laid out by the religious leadership. Someone's got to come and lower it, right? Well, here's how we lower God's standard of righteousness. You've heard me say this before, and it's still true today. I have over 90%, that number is too low, probably over 98% of the people I witness to answer this question with the exact same answer. If you were to die tonight and appear before God, and God were to tell you, ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what is the number one answer 98% of the time? I've lived a good life, my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, therefore let me in. But you want to talk about lowering the standard? But do you know what the answer reveals? Again, it's a lower standard of righteousness. I determine the standard, not God. See, humanity wants to change the rules of the game. One of the fond memories I have, fond memories, plural, is I grew up learning to play golf with my, my dad and my brother. And my brother, who was about four or five years older than me, suffered from juvenile diabetes. And by the time I was 13, he was 17, 18, I was able to physically wrestle him down and, and, and was just stronger than he was. But he had started golf, whereas I didn't start golf. I played football, basketball, baseball. So he was better at me in golf. Eventually, I would... I passed him up. And when we would go out and play, my brother and my dad and I would, would play a lot of golf. Um, this is a, a typical hole for us. I would have my drive, and it would, you know, I'd drive the ball pretty well. Uh, and my dad and I would drive about the same distance. My brother couldn't hit as far. And he would have a nice little slice, but um, he just wasn't nearly as athletic. The diabetes had taken a toll on his skills. And so he would maybe pull one or, or, or slice one into the woods, and he would then just push the ball out if he could find it. 
and not count a stroke, and then he would hit another ball, and it wouldn't go in the, in the air that far, and then he would lose that ball and drop another one, and then hit one up near the, in the sand trap, then hit it up in the, on the, the fringe, and then he would three-putt. So he would very easily have a 10. My dad would probably have a, a, on a par four, he'd have a, a five, and I would be, have a six. So after the hole, you write down what your score is. What'd you get, Dad? I had a five. Why I had a six? Well, Brian, what'd you get? Now, we know what Brian got. He said, well, what did you have? A six. Put me down for a six. So at the end of the, of the round, of 18 holes, you know, total it up, and sometimes his score would be lower than mine. And I'd be like, oh, what is going on here? But you see, he just liked to change the rules of the game. And isn't that what we all like to do? We do it with God. I want to change the rules so it's easier for me to get into heaven. We change the rules of the game in our favor. And in doing so, do you know what we do? We believe the lie. Now Jesus come along, comes along and says this, you've changed the rules so much, you've dragged the standard of righteousness down so low that somebody's got to raise it up again. So you've taken an internal law, and the Old Testament taught this, righteousness from a transformed heart. God would give you a, a, take out your stony heart and give you a, a soft heart, a fleshy heart. He would put a spirit in you and you would desire and, and have the ability to obey him. But they had taken an internal law, a righteousness from a transformed heart, and turned it into an external thing, an outward righteousness from a corrupt heart. And Jesus says this, I'm going to drive it back inside where it always belonged. That's my standard, God's standard of righteousness. And guess what? If you change the rules of the game, there will be consequences. Whoever what? Then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. I could ask you, I won't do this, but I could ask you, how has the church changed the rules of the game? Is God's word not clear on the deity of Jesus Christ? And yet there's some in the church and other churches that teach that he is not God. You're changing the rules of the game. Has God, does God's word not clearly state that you are justified uh, by faith, not by works? And yet there are churches that teach you're justified in God's sight by works. How about the only way to God? It's very clear, yet churches will teach a religious pluralism, different ways to God. How about homosexuality? Very clearly, those who practice it will not inherit the kingdom of God, yet you have churches that are affirming that lifestyle. So you're changing the rules of the game. What will happen to those pastors, to those religious leaders? I mean, he's clearly saying that this is going to happen. He's implying that. Whoever then changes one of these the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. It's unfortunately going to happen. But there will be a consequence. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
So the word of God, which outlines the principles and requirements spoken by God, that becomes the standard of righteousness. So how can we live out the Beatitudes? How can we be salt and light? We don't do it by lowering the standard. We do it by keeping God's principles of obedience to an absolutely authoritative word of God. This is the standard. You keep it. You don't change it. In his ways, they will always be in contrast to the theology of the day. In the theology of our time, the theology of the day only obeys what it wants to obey. You're not given that option in the word of God. In essence, what I'm asking you to do is to think differently. But what's the problem? What's the problem? That was the question asked by the actor Brad Pitt, who plays the real-life general manager of the Oakland Athletics, Billy Bean, in the 2011 movie Moneyball. The Oakland Athletics are a small market baseball team. In 2001, they had a $39 million payroll. The problem is they're competing with teams in the game of baseball with large market teams that have a $114 million payroll, i.e. the New York Yankees. The 2001 season ended with a first round loss in the playoffs for the Oakland Athletics. And the players that they had scouted, drafted, and developed into all-stars that had cheap contracts, because it was their first contract, guess what? They're now up for big contracts, and the Oakland Athletics cannot afford them. You could put the Cleveland Indians, Cincinnati Reds, Kansas City Royals. I mean, I don't think, is Seattle considered a small market team in baseball, the Mariners? Yeah, well, we, you're not going to compete with the Dodgers or the Red Sox or the Yankees, right? Athletics simply couldn't afford these players. So Billy Bean, he's trying to show his scouting staff in this memorable scene that the problem they have, they're not even looking at the problem. And after some back and forth in which his scouting staff say, we are still, they're looking to solve the problem of replacing these key players players that took years to develop with the existing players they have, Billy says, listen, you're not even looking at the problem. He says, here's the problem. The problem is, and I'm quoting, we're trying to solve is that there are rich teams and there are poor teams. Then there's 50 feet of crap and then there's us. It's an unfair game. And now we've been gutted. We are organ donors for the rich because those players that they developed that they couldn't afford went to the big market teams that could afford to pay them. They can sign those players to big league contracts. And his conclusion was this. We have got to think differently. We are the last dog at the bowl. You see what happens to the runt of the litter. He dies. Now this revelation led Billy Bean to build the 2002 Oakland Athletics using a different model for constructing a roster that included analytics. Analytics looks at the game of baseball not in buying players to win games, but in order to buy wins, you buy runs. 
And they used, that is the Oakland Athletics, used analytics to read statistics in a different way to find value in players that nobody else sees and that they could afford. The result is the following season, 2002, with a $41 million payroll, Billy Bean built a playoff team. They won more games than the year before. Now they lost all those all-star players from the previous season. Everyone would naturally think what? They're not gonna be good this year. Yet they won more games without them than they did with them. They won the exact same number of games as the New York Yankees won that same year. But here's the kicker. The New York Yankees paid $1.4 million per win. The Oakland Athletics paid $260,000 per win. Well, how did this happen? And this was revolutionary, by the way, in the game of baseball, but how did this happen? They thought differently. With me so far? They thought differently. The life that Jesus calls the citizens of his kingdom to live is different. It is counterculture. And they live differently. The citizens of his kingdom live differently because and only because they think differently. We live by God's standard of righteousness as revealed in his word. This is revolutionary. This is counterculture because this world is not in God's control. It is in one sense, but it's still under the control of Satan. It's the opposite. Whatever you're reading here, you will find the opposite in the world. You live according to this, you'll be living the opposite of the world. It's different. It's counterculture. We live by God's standard of righteousness as revealed in his word. If you just logically think it through, he already said this in Isaiah 55, 9. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And what? My thoughts than your thoughts. God thinks differently. So how do I live a counter-culture life? I remind you again, think differently. And here's how you do it. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. The fact that they are brothers means that they've believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, so they have offered their spirit to God. Now he's saying, not just your spirit, present your bodies. So offer your spirit and offer your body as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. Think of renewing of your mind as what? Think differently. So I offer my spirit, my body, my mind, and then finally my will. Then you'll prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So I offer God daily my spirit, my body, my mind, and my will. But a life is only transformed as a mind is renewed. A mind is renewed means this, think differently. Put this in you. This is your standard of righteousness. This is how you live 
a counterculture life. And so it's pretty simple. All I want you to do is to keep the word of God. And now I have explained to you what that is. Don't deviate from this standard. Live according to this standard. And you will renew, your life will be different if you renew your mind, you change what you think by putting this in you. And folks, if you've heard me say this before, I say it again, it's not enough to simply spend even 10, 15 minutes, 20 minutes just reading this. A day. You won't be transformed if you just do that. You take it, you put it in you. You meditate on it, you think about it throughout the day. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. You think differently. And you will know when you, for example, in a normal experience that you may occur, some daily, some weekly, some monthly, you get offended, someone angers you. If your reaction is to react in hurt and anger, to hurt that person, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, right? That's not what the Word of God teaches. When I am hurt, what does Jesus say to do? Bless. I quickly forgive. I bless. When you start to get to that point, you'll know that you're starting to be transformed. And that is not the way of the world. Amen? Well, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time this morning. And thank you for the words you've given us. We want to be a counterculture people. And as we do this study and learn how to live a righteous life in a, a culture that is completely opposed to everything that we think and do, we can only do this in the power of the Holy Spirit. So strengthen us to that end, and I pray that we would pursue you and practice our spiritual disciplines, making you the priority of our life, and that you would transform us out of an already transformed heart that we may live by your righteous standard as laid out in the word of God. And that you then in turn would expand our influence that you would be glorified as we are salt and light to a decaying and dark world. And all God's people said, amen. amen. We'll close the song. If you stand up with me, if you take a peek outside, it looks like the sun. I know we haven't seen it in a while, so... That's what it looks like, and let's worship and close with this song. Thank you.